Is the church in the West moving away from biblical faith and worship in an attempt to appear relevant to the world? If so, how does God feel about that and how should we respond? Welcome to the Busy Christian Podcast. Whether you're joining me for the video podcast through YouTube or an audio podcast through your preferred platform, then welcome to the Busy Christian Podcast with me, Steve Griffiths. This is the sixth episode in our series of podcasts on the book of Revelation. Uh, We're taking a really deep dive into this extraordinary book, pretty much verse by verse. Uh, We're looking at the cultural context, looking at what God was saying through that book, and also then how we can apply it to our own lives. In this episode, We're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, the letter from Jesus to the church at Thyatira. And it does have a very powerful message for us today because this passage challenges us to look into ourselves and our churches and ask ourselves whether or not we are staying true to the historic Christian faith and whether or not that is impacting how we worship God. It's a fascinating passage with some real life application. So we're going to get straight into it. Now, unlike the other cities where the seven churches are, we don't know that much about Thyatira. It's the smallest and most insignificant of the seven cities. Um, It's about 50 miles inland from the sea. And originally, the city was known as Pelopia, but renamed Thyatira by the king in 290 BC. There's no great architectural glamour in the city itself. Um, If you remember from previous podcasts, we've looked at some of these other incredible cities with temples and and with gymnasiums and sports stadiums and theatres. There's nothing like that in Thyatira. It was a bustling industrial town. There were wool workers, there were linen workers, dressmakers and tailors, cloth dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave traders and bronzesmiths. It was a real working town. And the claim to fame for Thyatira was that it had more workers' guilds than any other city in the Roman Empire. It was a pioneer in dyeing cloth, the most famous of all for its part in the indigo trade, actually. Now, Paul probably visited Thyatira during his second or third missionary journey. And we know that he stayed with a Thyatiran when he was in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Luke writes that he met a dealer in purple cloth from Thyatira called Lydia, and she was converted and baptised, and then she invited Paul to stay in her home, which he did. But that's about it. That's pretty much all we know about Thyatira from the first century biblical context. It's not much to go on. There's not much cultural context here, but enough to paint a very small picture for us. And we know that the church in Thyatira was a church where some Christians were faithfully persevering, but others were allowing worldly ideals to water down doctrinal belief and how they worshipped. And God has something to say to them about that, and perhaps he's got something to say to us as well. The text begins in verse 18 like this. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now that's a really interesting description of Jesus. It's the first and only time in the book of Revelation when he refers to himself as the Son of God. And so he is stressing his authority and his power. 
And then he doubles down on that by the other two aspects of his self-description here. He describes himself as having eyes like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now, if you remember, when we looked at the vision of Christ in chapter 1, if you haven't already uh, um, watched that or listened to that podcast, I think it was episode 2 in the series. Um, But when we looked at the vision of Christ in chapter 1, we noted that the description of his eyes like blazing fire related to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, as a statement of God's authority to judge and to see deep within any person or situation. And likewise, the feet like burnished bronze also comes from Daniel chapter 10 as well. And it's a reiteration of the judgment of God. So when the Thyatirans heard this description of Jesus, they must have been quaking in their shoes. It's a threefold claim for authority and power, a threefold claim of the right of Jesus to judge them. He's the son of God. He has ultimate power. He has eyes like blazing fire. He sees what's going on. And he has feet like burnished bronze. He stands in judgment over the Thyatirans. But compassionate as he is, Jesus then commends some of the Thyatirans. In verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So I think he's saying that the situation in which they find themselves is really difficult. And he commends some of them for standing firm in the faith and doing their best to stay true to the gospel. In tough circumstances, they were holding on. And we know sometimes from our own lives that perseverance, resilience, is an important spiritual quality to have. Sometimes it's as much as we can do to hold on to hang on in there. And Jesus commends us for persevering through tough times. But in verse 20, the tone changes. Jesus says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she leads astray my servants into acts of sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Okay, there's a lot going on here, so uh, let's unpack it a little bit. Firstly, who is Jezebel? Well, it probably doesn't refer to an actual woman in Thyatira called Jezebel. It's probably a metaphor. Given the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament, it's highly unlikely that any Jewish couple would have given that name to their newly born daughter. You can read about Jezebel in 2 Kings chapter 9, a woman accused of sexual immorality and sorcery who made a very nasty end by being thrown out of a window and her corpse was eaten by the dogs, leaving only the skull, hands and feet on the street. And Jezebel was guilty of seducing the people of God away from the practice of their faith and into sinful behaviour. And here, I think Jesus uses her as a metaphor for what's going on in Thyatira. Now, on the face of it, it seems really obvious what their sin is. Thyatiran Christians are engaging in sexual immorality and they are eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. But I think it's a bit more nuanced than that, and we need to dig a little deeper to get to the heart of what's being said. So here's verse 20 again. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
Now, the key to understanding this passage is how we interpret the phrase sexual immorality, or as other versions of the Bible put it and other Christians call it, fornication. What does that mean? What is fornication? What is sexual immorality? And what type of sexual acts are being referred to here? Now, there are many in the church who interpret this word fornication to mean things like adultery and sex before marriage. But that may not actually be what is referred to in the word fornication. It comes from the Greek word porneia, and there's a lot of research into that word. And it's an ambiguous word. It's very difficult to define. But one train of thought that comes out of this research is this, that yes, the word porneia relates to sexual activity, but sexual activity that is unlawful in the Bible. But what makes a particular sexual act unlawful in Scripture is that it goes against the teachings of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And nowhere in the Torah is premarital or non-commercial sexual intercourse considered unlawful. In the Torah, porneia, or fornication, has to do with either commercial sex with prostitutes, or what we call cultic sex, which is the use of prostitutes in religious acts in worship. And that was a really common practice in um, many temples in biblical times. And if that's the case... What Jesus is condemning when he condemns Jezebel for leading people into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols is the condemnation of practices in worship that are not worthy of God. So this is not Jesus saying that the Thyatirans are guilty in their everyday lives of having orgies and adulterous relationships and sex before marriage. Instead, Jesus is using Jezebel as a metaphor to critique the fact that the worship the Thyatirans were offering to God was inappropriate and unworthy. This letter from Jesus is a critique of false worship. This is a critique of practices in worship that go against what is right for God. So I think that what we have in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 2 is this. God is visiting Thyatira in judgment. And he sees the ordinary Christians doing things and practicing the faith, and he commends them. But there are some Christians whose way of worshipping is all wrong. And God then commends the faithful Thyatirans for their perseverance, but declares judgment on the errant worshippers. Now, this is a problem that had clearly been going on for quite a while. In verse 21, we read, I have given her time to repent, but she is not willing to repent. So twice in this verse, we see the word repent. And I think it's this that is angering God. I've asked her to repent, but she won't repent. And so the Son of God, with eyes like blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze, will come in judgment. And then verse 23 is even more stark. Jesus says, I will strike her children dead or as the Greek has it, and her children will be killed with death. 
There's an absolute finality about this. God finds the false worship abhorrent, and he's fiercely angry about it, and he's given time for repentance, but the false worshippers have refused, so he will strike them down, so that all Christians can see his judgment and learn their lesson. Verse 23, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. God knows us intimately. God knows our hearts and our minds. He knows what we think. He knows how we feel. And he will repay each one of us accordingly. Okay, let's just pause here for a moment and let me ask you, if you're finding this podcast useful, then please do click the like button and subscribe if you're watching on the YouTube channel or follow the channel if you're listening to the audio version. That would really help this podcast reach more people. Thank you so much. Okay, let's go back to the text. So Jesus has made this damning indictment of those people who are engaging in false worship. And now his gaze returns to the faithful Thyatiran Christians in the congregation. In verses 24 and 25, he says this, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus recognises that life is tough enough for the faithful in trying to, stand f- trying to stand firm against the false teachings and practices in their midst. It's enough for them to persevere in the faith. So why would he possibly ask anything more from them? They are burdened enough. But in offering his compassion to them in this way, he's also giving them very real hope for the future. He says, hold on to what you have until I come. Here is hope for the future. Things may be tough for them right now. They may be clinging on by their fingernails, but Christ is surely coming. And when he comes, they will be liberated and they will rejoice. But not only will they be freed into a life of rejoicing, they'll be given a reward of quite cosmic proportions as we read in verses 26 and 27, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. Now, this is an idea that we're going to come back to time and time again in Revelation, and uh, we don't need to unpack it too much now because we're going to be looking at it in more detail in future episodes of this podcast. But Jesus is promising that we, as faithful Christians, will have a share in his authority and his judicial rule over the nations, just as the Father has given authority to him, which was prophesied actually in Psalm 2, and that's quoted there in verse 27. Just as the Father has given authority to Jesus, so Jesus will share his authority with us. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? And we're going to go into it in some depth on another occasion, so we won't unpack it too much now. But this sharing of the authority of Jesus as a promise to us is an extraordinary idea to hold on to and to give us hope for the future. Future, And Jesus then reiterates that in verse 28. He says this, I will also give him, the faithful Christians, I will also give him the morning star. Now the morning star in Greek mythology 
is Venus. And in Babylonian mythology, Venus represents sovereignty. And in Roman mythology, Venus represents sovereignty and victory. And that's why so many Roman generals built temples to Venus after they'd won significant battles. So Christ uses a Jewish psalm, Psalm 2, to offer authority and sovereignty to the faithful Christians. And then he then reiterates that offer by using a phrase that means the same thing in Greek, Babylonian and Roman culture too. So there's no misunderstanding about what Jesus means here. He's used Roman, Greek, Babylonian, Jewish culture to get across this idea that we will share in the sovereignty and the power of Christ if we remain faithful to him in our doctrine and our worship and our practices. So there's an awful lot in this message, and it gives us a good opportunity to reflect, I think, on the nature of worship offered in our churches. Now, we don't use temple prostitutes anymore, and we don't eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. But we must always be sure that our worship is pleasing to God. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, we're reminded, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He will tolerate no rivals and he wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. Jesus said that in John chapter 4 verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And we need to think deeply about that and we need to examine ourselves and our churches. There's a temptation in the church in the 21st century to alter its course with regard to worship and doctrine in an attempt to appear relevant to society. Uh, The number of professing Christians in the West are dropping. Um, Church attendances in the West are down. Census figures in the West show people walking away from the Christian faith at a quite alarming rate. And the temptation for the church is to assimilate its cultural setting, the ways of the world, if you like, in an attempt to bring people back to worship, a sort of watering down of the biblical faith in order to appear attractive to the world. But we mustn't go down that path because it isn't honouring to God. And Paul warns about it too in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. I love this verse. He expresses it so well. Paul says, For the time will come when people will not tolerate healthy doctrine, but with itching ears will surround themselves with teachers who pander to their own desires. Are you one of those people? Am I one of those people? Is your church, is my church, staying true to historic doctrine and engaging only in acts of worship that are pleasing to God? Or is there a move away from that, either towards hardline conservatism or a soft liberalism that is impacting worship, doctrine and practice? Now these are tough questions and it requires real courage to answer them truthfully. But we must not forget the teaching inherent in this passage, that Christ is the Son of God who will visit us in judgment. He recognises our perseverance through difficult times, and he commends us for that, but he abhors false worship, and he is angry with those who lead Christians astray, and he will come in judgment on such people. We must be constantly examining our worship to make sure that it is a worthy offering to our holy 
and sovereign God. And we must constantly be searching our hearts and minds to make sure that our attitude towards worship is pleasing to him. And to those who resist and persevere, he will give authority to rule. Their current weakness will be replaced with a strength and power that they cannot even begin to comprehend at the present time. It's a really powerful letter and it asks us to look deeply within ourselves and with our contemporary church situation and ask the question, is our worship, is our doctrine honouring to God? So thank you for giving me so much of your time today. I hope you found this a useful podcast. If so, as I say, please do click the like button and subscribe on YouTube or follow the audio podcast channel. And I look forward to being back with you again very soon as we move on to the next stage of our study and application of the book of Revelation. Bye-bye. <laughs>